as Mr. Let's Paint says, embrace failure. We need to. We need to let these things fail. And it's not going to be easy to watch it happen. And it's going to be epic. But it has to happen. This failure has to happen. This is the Bitcoin Muse, and I'm Clay Anus. Today, Alex Schaefer, best known for his paintings of burning banks, bookends our longer conversation about creating art and technological advances with eloquent and passionate disdain for the Federal Reserve and its downstream malignancies. As the kids say, it's fire. Alex brought a wonderful animated energy to our discussion that must have made him a favorite among his students at California's Art Center College of Design. And he has lots to share about his chosen profession of painting, how we might interpret his and others' work, and possibly provide inspiration for other artists in their chosen media, all the while remaining clear-eyed about producing meaningful painterly quality amidst the fiat-fueled dumpster fires ablaze around us. As usual, we drop into our conversation with no introductions, but all his links, including his online gallery and many of the topics that came up, are in the show notes. Safe to say, googling paint with Alex, one word, will take you to him. Enjoy this rip with Alex Schaefer as he brings the heat. It's been fun sort of watching your trajectory too, because I was stalking you, yeah. as you do, in preparation for our conversation. And it feels like Bitcoin, though you're not very vocal, that ethos and what it seems to solve, you get it. There was an anger of sorts. Yeah, yeah. And Bitcoin seems to have given it some structure, maybe. Yeah. It really was 2008, 2009 to 2012. And 2008 was when I really just plugged into what is this financial world? And I started watching videos, and there's just so much opportunity to learn online. Um, listening to people like Max Kaiser. He was a big influence on me, and you know he's like a crazy diehard Maxi. It's amazing to watch him. He's so much more interesting. Just learning about what is money. I mean, you know, I can think back actually because we were talking about Art Center. I was a student there from like '89 to '92 or something like that, and there was a teacher, Bern Hogarth. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bern Hogarth. No. He was like a comic book guy. He drew Tarzan, and he was one of these old-school comic artists. He was like an anatomy master and stuff, and he had this incredible bombastic class, and he was always yelling. And, and he would just yell questions out when we were drawing just to be thinking or to kind of knock our heads off track or whatever. And he's like, what is money? You know, this is, I was like 19 or something. I really, I've never crossed my mind. What is money? And people were kind of like, oh, you know, like not really having an answer. And he was like, it's stored human labor. And I was like, whoa. You know, <laughs> it, it, he kind of reminded me of the Ned Beatty character from Network. You know, that famous scene? He's sure. like, the world is college. You know. Corporations and international this and that. I'm going to have to open my window and start screaming out my apartment window here. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was people on the internet back then yelling to each other literally across the alleys and across the roads in, in the big city. 
crying out like, is somebody thinking the same thing as me? Yeah. So that was the first thing I ever remember thinking about money, like stored human labor. And then you start learning about gold and the constitution and, and, uh, Aristotle and, and, uh, you know, fungibility and scarcity and kind of classical definition of what is money. You know, I was born close to 1971 too. So my whole life, probably yours too, has yes. been under the federal reserve note of 1971 which is a new money. It is not the same money. It looks the same. The dollar bill is the same. Oh, sorry, sorry. But it was a whole new form of money. The way it seems to me is that it's kind of like modern monetary theory without the public realizing it at first. They've monetized an endless source of money units and they've duped the public into thinking like you gotta scrimp and save, and we gotta tax you, and and well, where are we gonna? We gotta cut the budget. We gotta find this money here and take this money from there, and that's how you live in your household. Or you're attempting to run your own private hedge fund by being a uh, stock picker. <laughs> yeah, and that's just not how the government has operated. It's totally the opposite for them. They've had just an endless means of monetizing every terrible idea that they've had for the past 53 years. Terrible foreign policy, terrible domestic policy, terrible policy on industry and labor and wages and salaries. And 1971 was like the beginning, the beginning of the end. I remember when I was a kid, my grandpa was like, credit cards are terrible. You know, he was, he was kind of like Bern Hogarth. He was like, loud and and uh, a big character credit cards were a new thing it's they're so pervasive now but like people forget 1979 there weren't that many credit cards yet but then it was like they made it easier and easier you know there was amex and there was like diners club and then the high-end people were getting personal credit cards and credit lines and stuff like that and then they just opened the floodgates. I remember what a controversy it was that they were like, oh, we're going to give college kids credit cards. Yeah, the and Discover like, card. What? But the thing is, this insidious thing, this credit card, has been the stopgap for inflation. I mean, it is inflation, but it enables people to sustain the inflation of their money by borrowing money from these banks and, and living. And so instead of wages going up, it's just been another reason for wages to just completely flatten and actually go down in, in response to the, to the value of the money that you're getting paid with. And then the solution is, how am I going to make it? Oh, credit cards. And then people now are buying groceries on their credit cards. It's disgusting. And then when you learn what a credit card is, that they just conjure this money out of nothing and loan it to you for 19% interest, it's just like, well, it's outrageous. It's true. While well, they borrow at zero. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've set a beautiful stage there of our lifetime of a degradation of money, of almost everything. Yeah. You know, it's hard to believe that we were born. We're about a year apart. Though we've enjoyed some of the pleasures of technological advance, it masks the underlying degradation of almost everything else. Yeah. And I really think that so many of America's problems, and I would even argue addiction, 
depression, racism, all this stuff, uh, xenophobia, this is all rooted in the money. If people got paid fairly and there were enough jobs, they didn't just send them all to another country so they could take advantage of dictatorships and third world economies, people yeah. would be so much happier. They wouldn't care to be racist because there would be no excuse. That convenience that all of these credit cards and, and just the lack of depth of thinking about what is money, you were gifted that question obviously a lot earlier than I was, I think we would be thinking more profoundly too, right? That there's yeah. a kind of shallowness to everything in the fiat world. Yeah. It's more than wages. Is what are your wages paid in, you know, from a Bitcoin yeah. perspective. I'm in 100% agreement with you in this painted landscape that you've just put out. <laughs> it is kind of funny to hear all of this economic stuff coming from uh, a fine artist. I know. Do you find those hats to be... Because I'm, I'm in the same boat a little bit. Bitcoin sort of woke me up to these questions yeah. and to these ideas. And yet it ran counter to my kind of lefty artist upbringing. Yeah. It could be just part of my brain. My dad, rest his soul, he passed away. But he was a super money brain guy. Huh. I mean, his job was property manager. But his art was like learning about money and investing and all this stuff. I wish that when I was younger that I figured out or that he was more of a teacher. He, you know, he wasn't a teacher. Teacher is a different kind of personality. And so, you know, I didn't learn a lot from him. I learned all about life and morality and morals and things like that. But, you know, he didn't teach me the stuff that he learned. But it's probably part of my brain. My mom's the opposite. She likes art and she's a... Uh, kind of a tomboy and and uh so I, I got two sides to to my brain well that's nice i mean both creative though you, you said your dad wasn't he brought creativity to his effort there yeah and just de devoted he just learned took night classes and all this stuff i mean now you would just buy a course on the internet but it was like harder in the 70s and 80s to learn about stuff <laughs> yeah no for sure that's the contradiction in today's world right well we can point to the degradation across a huge swath of domains. Sailor.org and others are offering free education. I mean, or for pennies on the dollar, I can get a yeah. master's degree. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to be angry when all I have to do is show some initiative. Yep, exactly. You know, yeah. it's funny because like we're talking about art school and art center, being an artist. I taught at art center for 12 years after about 10 years in the video game business. As the internet kind of came up and became more of an opportunity to sell art and promote and stuff like that, and then I stopped teaching. But I've taught some a few workshops, and, and uh, I've had some parents and parent-teacher classes with kids that want to learn something. I honestly tell them, like, you really should think about paying to go to art school now. Really look into it. The reason I left Art Center was because it got so expensive. Expensive. I mean, it was one of the schools that just gilded and built and expanded and it got bigger and bigger. And I mean, honestly, it's probably still a good education and very professional compared to other places. But God, it got so expensive. And the opportunities are there to learn anything now.
online. Yeah, I feel the same about film and photography. Go be a PA on a movie set. You're going to learn more in three months than, than yeah. four years. Or if you're in the video games, Unreal, who is the company that makes the engine for like all these other games, they just give their program away to use. And so if I meet a kid and they're like, I want to work in video games. I'm like, you should go download Unreal Engine and start watching some videos on how to do it because you'll be learning right there. And you know what? I guarantee some of these video game companies are just going to have a school. Sure. They're going to become such a campus that they're going to hire people that are motivated and then educate them on the job. Yeah. So in your role as a professor of painting, yeah. what? Well, I wasn't a professor, but I was an instructor. Okay. There's a, there's a whole hierarchy. I don't want to get into no it. No doubt. It's very, very, it's like, I'm a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's the word, yeah. They call me prof. Okay, fair enough. As an instructor, as somebody who was teaching painting, yeah. what were the ideas you were trying to convey? Because you also had in your mind all this, let's say, uh, understanding of the monetary system. Were you, yeah. were you able to compartmentalize or were you just laying it out? Oh, I mean... I was teaching from, let's say, 2001 to 2002 to 2014. So then my big blow up with the Burning Bank paintings happened in uh, 2011. And I always taught foundation stuff. So I wasn't the teacher that was that they were getting like in sixth, seventh, eighth term where it's like conceptual illustration and classes where you figured out What's your kind of your niches, your style, how you like to work? You know, if it's collage or whatever, watercolor. So it would be later on that they would get the classes where the teachers would give them conceptual thought structures. Sure. Well, my classes were mostly just foundation. Okay. Values, colors, pigments, composition, tips and tricks and stuff that, that people need to learn for illustration. You're like, what's transfer paper? And I was all pre-Photoshop, too. Like, that's funny. Uh, when I went to Art Center graduating in 92, no one taught anybody any Photoshop in the illustration department. It was only graphics, and there was like a couple of Macintoshes that had it. I actually, just like I was saying, the video games are going to have, companies are going to have schools. I actually learned on the job at Disney, Photoshop. Yeah, same. I remember version 1.5 was the first... My first touching of that program. Yeah, you know, I go back to we used D-Paint. Awesome. And textures were 16 by 16 pixels. <laughs> so this was like Sega Genesis Super NES games. Yeah. So cool. And we got to Photoshop. We opened up a 128 by 128 pixel file to make a texture for Photoshop. We're like, oh, my God. This is huge. Uh, yeah. I mean, flash forward to this. You know, these mid-journeys, it's really quite something, what folks have access to today. Oh, my God. Yeah, Photoshop beta? You ever mess with that, though? With generative fill? Yeah, I haven't gone there yet. I mean, it makes something super easy. Like, when I would want to select, let's say, a figure out of a photo and select that as a separate layer with the background, you have to paint that all with the quick mask and a brush. Sure. And you were painting this, like, ruby lith around. Now you just... Make a square around it, and it goes, do you want to select this? And you're like, yes, and it's perfect. You're like, holy cow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. I've been playing with Midjourney, and the folks I follow on Noster and Twitter, a, a number of them are AI artists. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, it's brilliant. 
and it got me calling the whole thing just beauty engines because we were in this world of of kind of beautiful creation. Yeah. I had a conversation with a guy named Hack Zero who noted that this was going to give access to physically disabled folks to render imageries, images and things in their heads and it was, what they think. Yeah. Right. Oh my god. Right? I was like, okay, this yeah. is Yeah. I it's just it's mind blowing. I can't I I it's almost hard to process. Sometimes I just go black pill and I just think if people are addicted to content and scrolling and just seeing constant novel images, oh, ah, oh, oh, tickle. Every time a little molecule of dopamine goes, boop, and you're like, oh, ha, hee hee, oh, a cat, meow, you know, and, and we just scroll and scroll. With AI, you will just be captivated. Like, you want to hear one of my, my like, end game uh, AI entertainment things. It's like this. You'll subscribe to Disney AI. You'll agree that they get to look at your whole online search history, everything you read, all your photos, what you love, your likes, your dislikes. And they'll feed this into this AI. And every person will get their own totally unique Disney animated original feature with new characters, an original score, and a story that will just pluck every heartstring. You'll cry, you'll laugh, and it'll just be like, <gasps> think about it. I, I don't even think we're that far away from that. No, I don't. You're right. It reminds me of that, the joke medical bracelet that they sell that looks like uh, somebody with a medical condition. Uh, and then it says, if I die, erase my browser history. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I've actually tr asked uh, Photoshop beta to do generative fills, and sometimes it's like, we're not allowed to do that. Huh. Because I was just like, I wanted to see if I could have it make what looked like Hunter Biden in a hotel room getting pissed on. <laughs> and so I actually got it to make a pretty convincing, like, Hunter Biden nude from the waist up on his knees kind of in a hotel. So then, then I did this generative fill where I was like, luxury penthouse and I expanded the image and now it looked like him in a room and then I made selected a little rectangle and I said uh blonde Ukrainian woman uh in a bikini standing here and it was like oh we can't do that and I was like what <laughs> try one piece <laughs> uh, yeah I, I tried a bunch I, you know I just tried like not even just having a person just a person <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. And also it seems it's kind of a nice image to see you, right, who's steeped in the traditional oil painting, the Bay Area figurative movement being an inspiration Yeah, to be messing around with these toys. Oh, yeah. I've never had any qualms about especially things like Photoshop. I know that there are purists and and they only kind of want to use the materials that uh, Leonardo had and, and anything after that. You're cheating. I, there was just a few re revelations I had regarding that that totally dispelled that. I mean, back in the day, those artists were the vanguard of technology and science. They were creating images that were the cutting edge. And I'm convinced that one-point perspective when you were like a peasant living outside a village farming tubers 
and then you Sunday you go to church and you see this like one point perspective painting that that was as mind blowing to them as like putting on virtual reality goggles to us. And also the thing is like Masaccio's painting of Jesus crucified and it's in the church painted on the walls. It's a very famous one point perspective painting. The thing people also don't realize, when you just look at that in a textbook, tiny, reproduced, four inches, you're not seeing it the way and in the place you're supposed to see it. Kind of like those sidewalk illusions where you have to stand in one spot. The perspective works for right where you take communion. So when you are taking communion, you are in the sweet spot for that one-point perspective. And it's like, wow, holy cow. And then the priest gives you the wafer and the cup, and it's like, dang. Because you can walk to the side of one of those crazy uh, sidewalk perspective drawings, and you wouldn't even know what it was. You just think someone spilled a bunch of paint, and then you get to that one spot, and it's like, zing, and it looks like a hole in the ground or something. Yeah, that's cool. I like that idea. I mean, I know there's in the history of film, right, the people jumping out of the way of the train coming. Yeah. Thinking it was going to hit them. And I spent some time with David Copperfield, and he had made the analogy that magic was deeply braided with technological advance. And so as soon as the iPhone emerged, there was magic on the iPhone. And yeah. Photography, too, as we're absolutely, I mean, sure, there's still people sh shooting glass plate, but we're all using our iPhones. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I read and I saw a book about Norman Rockwell that showed how extensively he used photography and projectors, and that he was ashamed of it. He actually personally hid it from people and never talked about it because he felt like people are going to think I'm cheating. Every single, there's nothing made up in, in, except for these beautiful compositions. Nothing is made up in the Norman Rockwell. Amazing. I mean, I, the photos of the backgrounds, sometimes he would get the head correct and the body correct in another photo and he'd use this projector to scale it up, trace the body, and then he'd put in the head photo, and he'd shrink it down so that it worked, and then he'd trace the head, and it was all, you know. Yeah. But what's funny is it's the exact same process as like a Bouguereau or a Leonardo da Vinci, you know. Sure. They'd map those things out. Yeah. They had like calipers and little measuring sticks and stuff. It's pretty great. And all kinds of crazy contraptions, you know. When I went to Art Center before photocopiers became quite a thing and you could shrink and reduce on a photocopy machine, they had this whole room dedicated to this thing called a balopticon, Lucy graph. And it was like as big as a car. And it had, uh, had this frosted glass plate on it and a, uh, all these mirrors and cranks. And, <laughs> and you'd put a photograph on it and then you would, it would project the photo on this glass plate, and you could enlarge it by cranking it down or shrink it by moving it up, and you'd trace it down on your tracing paper. That was how you enlarged and reduced, and that was like a big giant machine, you know, and then that became the copy room. <laughs> <laughs> so cool, right? I remember uh, in my high school, they took the card catalog from the library and started storing three and a half inch floppies in them. The card catalog was no longer necessary with these beautiful drawers that's perfect for a floppy. I'm sure that machines like that have come and gone throughout history in the 16th, the 17th, the 18th, the 19th century, the 20th century, 
and they all get supplanted by some other new technology, and that thing just becomes a, a cobweb and then forgotten. Mm. Mm. But Albrecht Durer and all these crazy dudes had contraptions and ways of trying to to make this three-dimensional world flat. Yeah, cool. And you've chosen a particular genre and even a style that is very mid-century. Let's yeah. Well, you're obviously adept at Photoshop and these AI tools. Yeah. But I like paint. You've sort of staked your claim in paint. What's going on there? Yeah. The older I get and the more that the tech is, is coming about and the, the, the image is the endless imagery and stuff like that, you just got to flaunt the paint more and more. You almost got to be sloppier. You got to just push paint and force that because that's what's so different. We're never going to win the John Henry battle. You know, uh, John Henry was a steel-driving man. You know that folk I know the song, but I'm I'm bad with lyrics. Well, John Henry was like African American miner, and he bet that he could beat this mining machine because the mining machines were taking over mining from the miners with like picks, and he was such a huge guy, you know, and he beat the machine in a one on one, but then he died. He exhausted himself. He won and then died. And then eventually, like, machines took over. I kind of feel like it's the same way against the tech. You just have to, it's like Aikido. You have to sort of deflect it and just be like, no, that's not what it's all about. I will be amazed when a computer robot squeezes out paint on a tube and paints a still life or something on a canvas. Because it's a whole other process. Light versus pigment. There's a sticky, tricky thing there that's happening. It's like magic. Yeah, I guess you're right. And I think in photography, there's folks still shooting film for its mysteries and its yeah, its analog qualities yeah. and uh, the latent image. So I don't want to be someone who's going to be... I'll never be someone who's going to be admired for how tight they are. I'm like Team Rembrandt, Team Franz Halls, Team Titian, Team Delacroix, you know. I'm not Team Aang and Team Raphael and, and uh, Team Michelangelo. I remember having a teacher who said there's two dichotomies in painting, expressionism and classicism, and you can go all the way back to caveman times. I'm on that side. For those who aren't necessarily getting those references, a looser, more painterly... Yeah. See the brushstroke yeah. versus yep. the invisible brushstroke. Right. In the Renaissance, the two icons uh, that, that illustrated that dichotomy were Michelangelo and Titian. And they knew each other and they were like alive at the same time. Michelangelo would say to Titian, nice color, but your drawing sucks, loser. And then Titian <laughs> would be saying, yeah, you got good compositions, but your color stinks, ding dong. Even back then, you know, it's just a whole different approach to painting. One of them is more tied to fresco, and it's more procedural, and it has to be done in a certain order because you don't do things out of order with fresco. You only have six hours to finish what you can finish in a day in fresco, and if you don't finish, you're screwed. 
So you have to plan ahead. You have to do a final line drawing. You have to blow that up to the actual size. You have to pay some kid to take a spur and poke holes all along the contour. Then they put fresh white plaster down. Now you got eight hours before it's dry. You have to put your cartoon up. You pounce it with chalk. You have all of your colors pre-mixed, flesh and light, flesh and halftone, flesh and shadow, green and light, green and halftone, green and shadow. And you just have all these little cups of basically gouache. And you got to finish painting it. And it, it is like watercolor because the white is the wall. You don't use white with fresco. Oil painting, totally different. Once they figured out, you know, they were like, you don't even have to do a drawing first. You could just... Just start throwing paint on the canvas. You'll figure out the composition later. And that's why when you get to high renaissance and, and you start following the artists after Titian and his acolytes and his acolytes, they got so loose, they didn't even, there aren't even any drawings of them. There's no drawings of Doso Dosi. He didn't draw on paper. He drew on the canvas and he just winged it. And then you x-ray those paintings and you see that they move the hand from here to here and they change this figure to this way and they got rid of this figure, and they put a baby in, and then they took it out, and it's all on the canvas, changing, but all you see is the end. Whereas, you don't x-ray fresco, it's done. It's like painters that paint, and they start at the top, and they work like a copy machine, and they just finish as they go, and they know exactly where they're gonna go. I consciously, and it's to my temperament, my artistic temperament, to not work like that. I did when I did some freelance illustration and, and that was kind of like what I was studying to do and stuff. But I just like the more haphazard attack. Yeah, I think you're one of your uh, your contemporary heroes, this John Kilduff. Oh, he's a genius. Oh my God. He's the greatest. I, he was live streaming last night. Yeah, well, he's on this crazy ass music trip right okay. now. He broke his keyboard yesterday. You look at his paintings and his output, and he does plain air and landscape, and, and uh, he is super original. He can make you achieve Satori. He's like a, a, a Zen master. Like If you're ready to get the message, then it's kind of like Zen. It hits you, and you go, this guy's the greatest. Like, this is... You have to also understand that he's just cast such a wide field of artistic expression from corny television to these weird live streams and goofy painting. That also in and of itself is is kind of a genius. You know, I, I'm not even close, but I can try to cast a fairly wide net in painting to embrace the what like he he's and on the on the sort of the Dionysian side as opposed to the Apollonian. Okay, because in watching his work, some of the Bitcoiners complain that we've got this kind of degradation of high art. Oh, right? uh, yeah. And you might look at him at first. Yeah. Right? And, and maybe for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And wonder what happened to us. <laughs> and yet you're fine, right? You're yeah. finding a Zen, a, a revelation. Yes. Now, can world. I tell you, I'll tell you a story. Sure. Uh, I've heard this told in a couple where it was like different people. But the way I heard it was there was a like a Jesuit minister who went to Japan in this period of time when Japan was kind of opened up for a while. 
he admired European art and he brought that mindset with him. So he sought out in Japan as part of his life. He wanted to meet the greatest painter in Japan. And so, you know, he met the guy because the Jesuit guy was a big deal. And he had connections. And so he met this painter. He's admiring these paintings and, and you know, but they're, they're like ink and, and brush paintings. The Jesuit guy commissioned a painting from the Japanese painter. And the Japanese guy said, okay, it's going to take me a year. So give me half the money now and come back in a year. And so, you know, the guy's like, okay, great. You know, he gives him half the money and the guy's like, okay, bye. Can't wait to see it. So then like three months comes by and he's like, are you working on it? Can I see it? And the guy's like, no, no, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm working on it. But no, you can't see it. Six months later, same thing. <laughs> now he's kind of like, come on, I want to see what I'm doing. I already paid for half of it. You got to show me something. And the guy's like, I'll be patient, you know, and this, finally 12 months comes by and he says, okay, I'm here for my painting. And the Japanese guy goes, great. You know, and he just rolls out a piece of paper, ink, brushes, colors, ready, everything. Boom. He does it in an hour. This incredible painting, landscape, birds, people, waterfalls. And the guy's like, <gasps> and he's blown away. But he said, why did that take you a year? I love the painting. Here's the rest of the money. He's like, it took me a year to be able to do it that easily. That's a different mindset. I remember having a mentor, Zolita's Birdlove. And she was up in LA and she was an old lady. And, you know, she actually knew like Diebenkorn and stuff. And I love her paintings. And she's very, very loose and, and on the side of the spectrum of painterly painters. And she basically, the way she said it is businessmen make to them, time is money. And when they see something that took a lot of time, and you can just tell looking at it, that that makes it seem valuable to them right out of the gate. They're not going to appreciate something like a John Kilduff. They might not even appreciate a Van Gogh. If you actually saw a Van Gogh, and it wasn't whoever's the new Van Gogh, chances are they'd see a Van Gogh and be like, garbage. And there's people that argue that Van Gogh is overrated and, uh, oh, we, we should have uh, followed the line of Bouguereau and, and uh, uh, Meissonier instead of Manet. But the thing is that those painters have been around since the beginning, that dichotomy, and one isn't better than the other. And the funny thing was, I remember reading Matisse talking about it used to be Ang versus Delacroix, and Ang was the tidy pants, and Delacroix was the slob. And now we look at them and you can't, they're almost, the, the differences are so minor. It's paint, it's on canvas, it's figures, it's composition. But these people, their students and their admirers would have like uh, had a duel over who was better and killed someone probably. <laughs> you know, and now we look at it and it's like, oh yeah, old, old guys. Historical content. Yeah. Muscles. Sure. <laughs> I like that a lot. I think it helps the snobby Bitcoiner understand what they would term as proof of work through a different lens. Yeah, that proof of work can be a lifetime of achieving an elegance. Like what Matisse said, the painter must paint like the singer sings. That is without constraint. An acrobat performs their act with ease and an apparent facility, but let's not lose sight of the fact it took them years to make it look simple. You don't want to see an acrobat looking like, it's really hard and ah, you know, you want to just see and go bling, bling, 
boing, boing, boing. So good. Yeah, really good. <laughs> One of your other uh, mentors, David Park. Yeah. I was reading about him. There was a quote about his work and how he kind of rejected the expressionists to come back to the figurative work. Yeah. And somebody said that there's a mixture of humor and gravitas in Park's work. And I think that applies to yours. Oh, good. Yeah. Because when I first saw you, it was a tweet by, um, what was her, Moon Kitty. I think she had a shot of you painting the Fed on fire. Yeah. I thought, that is hilarious. I hadn't seen any other, you know, I'd never, who were you? Yeah. <laughs> Not realizing it was part of this. It's like a meme. It's crazy. <laughs> it is. It is a meme. And so then when I realized that this is a large body of work, that, that you're committed here, and then obviously poking around and then seeing that you had collabed with Tom Badley on his yes. notes, I was like, all right, this is going to be a lot of fun to talk to you because that humor, I found humor in it. And then I start poking around on Twitter and it's like, holy shit, you're a little angrier maybe. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. God, I, I got to watch the the angry, like before I've had my breakfast tweets. <laughs> Somehow like my feed... The For You feed is just filled with people that are pissing me off. Yeah, but I think your paintings, because they're going to speak for you long after we're gone, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want the paintings to be good paintings. And that's why I don't just paint burning banks. I love seascapes and, and still lives and, and uh, landscapes and painting figures and stuff like that. And, and also just random things. Like at the moment, there's an arbitrage between the prices that are my burning banks, which are like my sunflowers, my most sought after pieces, and then other works that are not flamey. They, you know, they command normal prices. And so if someone's a collector and they want to just, my advice, first of all, is you got to buy it and you got to like it. You shouldn't be expecting an ROI on your art collection. You're doing it wrong if you're doing it that way. You should buy the art that you love and that moves you and that you want to talk about and it's on your wall and it inspires or you just you just you want to have it like a beautiful stone or something. And if you luck out and make money, then you're then that's incredible. Good congratulations, but the people that make money at art, that is their job. Gertrude Stein. She wasn't trying to get passive income off of Matisse and Picasso. She bought early and cheap and deep into their collections. And then it was her life mission to introduce America to these artists. And she was their champion and their, uh, their uh, hype man or hype, hype lady. <laughs> you know, I mean, even Charles Saatchi, as much as, you know, his uh, young British artist, 1990s, he blew that whole scene up. He made it. He made the whole YBA scene. A few of them became bigger than Charles Saatchi, like Damien Hirst and Tracy Emin. And if you were lucky enough to buy the pieces when he was pumping and dumping them, then you're making money. But there's a whole, oh, like, don't get me started on that whole business side of things. Well, I think there's a lot of talk in the Bitcoin. We kind of understand that there's, a, there's an aspect of laundering and that as the money degrades, people seek these scarce assets and, and paintings yeah. would be. And it's mostly that. in New York. And these are the same people that rig markets on the stock exchange and whatever. And to them, the art world is a pump and dump dream. There are no regulations. There is no, and there shouldn't be. But at the same time, they have just taken the framework of 
buy low, sell high, talk it up a lot on the way up. And it's just what's ended up is we're not getting the art that we need as a, as a society. We're getting fed the art that like, especially from art forum and art news and then the, the big art important, you know, is this the art that the American public or that our society needs for real? Or is it just more zombie formalism so that they can get a $20,000 tax write-off on some crappy painting that they loaned to some museum? Well, what do we need? And I mean, again, someone who's got all of art history floating around in your mind, not just dates, but the actual images and the, the stories. Yeah. What do you propose beyond your own work? I, um... What would you say if you were standing in front of a 400-level class as these kids are going to go out and make work, and it can extend beyond painting? Yeah. What would you like to see? It doesn't have to be you know, grandiose. That's a tough question because it just it seems like art is also like memes, that uh, it's a way from kind of like stand-up comedy to let other people know the boundaries of thinking. I think that when we get isolated and uh, we just get the, the news and things like that and we're sort of discouraged from, you know, community, that we can start to question what we're thinking and what we're seeing where we're like, am I wrong or why am I thinking this? And then when you see other expressions of people doing that, go like in stand, like I love going to stand up, but in stand up comedy and uh, that it just... It broadens the the field of acceptable thought and discussion. My Burning Bank paintings are like, I think that they're like a, a canary in a coal mine or they're like a steam release valve. And, you know, I don't know if they're changing the world, but I'm hoping that it allows people to look at that work and go, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fucking pissed. You know, maybe it's my Gen X... Kurt Cobain mumbling lyrics kind of thing. Like, I'm not trying to beat an idea over the head and make a work that guides you through the whole piece. Like, this is what I'm thinking, and it is good, and this is what you should think, and that's it. This painting that I'm showing in Austin, it's a tough painting. It looks like three people hanging with signs of the three big banks over their head. And I've had a bunch of people go, oh, you're an anti-Semite. Why are you hanging these Jews? I've had a bunch of people go, why are they African-Americans? Why are you hanging black people? And in my opinion, it could just as easily be an effigy. People hang things in effigy. Why are these people jumping to these conclusions? And I can't say, no, it's not that. But I can say, wow, you really are looking a lot into these brushstrokes. You know, you should think about how this is projecting. Because why are some people saying these look like this type of person, and some people are saying they look like this type of person. You know what? It doesn't matter. We just need to get rid of this system. Yeah, and that, as a sidebar to that, that painterly quality is what your particular genre and school encourages, right? Where it's not so perfect and ang-like. Yeah. Yes. That the brushstrokes allow for and engage the audience in interpretation. Yeah, and that there's you know, different levels of perception at different distances and I think that's important for people when they come to this work to sort of understand that there's a game and a, a conversation that happens with the audience as you yeah. make that work. And that's definitely steeped in Impressionism. I mean, there's artists that were proto-Impressionists like Turner 
like Titian, like Rembrandt. Like Rembrandt, when he would get a portrait commission and he'd have them come in and look at the painting, he wouldn't let them stand more than 10 feet away. Like you, you weren't allowed to get close to it. He'd go, oh, no, the varnish, the smell's going to bother you. Because he didn't want him to get all up into it and be like, why does that brush stroke have a bump on it? So he'd like grab him by the back of the jacket and go, oh, no, 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 look at it from up here. Look, yeah. yeah. And that is the, that the image congeals in the eye and the mind, and it's not finished per se. There's a famous Picasso quote where he said, when a painting is finished, it's dead. Meaning like, oh, God, you, you filled in every line, and it's all done, and da-da-da, it's done, it's cooked. If you're on the side of the spectrum that, that admires that sort of uh, uh, unfinished, finished, on, on a razor's edge of imagery, then that's like a nice thing to hear someone say. But if you're not, then you just, well, you know, there's a lot of people that think Picasso sucks. Yeah, you know, yeah, I won't get into that debate, but I'm still in the sidebar, but now bringing it back. That you've got yeah. this engagement, this conversation with the audience, understood. What that contrasts so obviously with is all this AI perfectness, right? This beautiful imagery that's that's glowing off your phone from a foot and a half away. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't, you know, majestic, yeah. unbelievable sculptures, landscapes, everything is this. And then running that into a kind of stand-up vernacular yeah. where artists are now going to be fully pushing boundaries yeah. of cultural acceptance. The AI stuff doesn't really do that. I know, and it's interesting. Um, who knows where it's going to get to? And again, the AI is on the screen. It's a screen. It is light. It is more like stained glass. It is not like a painting. A painting is not even like like a 99% of the images that we see outside of screens are watercolor. It is white paper with ink sprayed on it. Then 99% of the other images that we see are on screens. And a screen is light itself shining at you. It is more like how the world comes at your eyes, like light. And a painting is totally, it's not either of those things. It is like a chameleon. It can change the surface of its skin and color. And it's the surface color itself is actively changing in an interesting, forceful way that is different from, from screens. And it's different from prints, printing, everything else that we see is a print. I think that the painterliness, again, is flaunting the human nature. The bumps and the moles and the, the uh, what they call pentimenti, the brushstrokes on top of brushstrokes and the fact that you can x-ray this image and see these things happening. I mean, now I can take work in progress photos, and I do, and, you know, I can make like a gif of the whole painting just going, changing around. But all that stuff is unique and, and part and parcel to painting. Nothing else has it. Yeah, it's really nice. There's no under the screen. There's another image under the screen. There's only the photons on the absolute surface level. And also, they're all flat. They're perfectly flat. They're like glass. Yeah. Stained glass. Yeah, cool. I, I like that analogy. That's really, uh, that's kind of perfect. If, for instance, you're, uh, you were painting the Fed, I think, in D.C., were you not? Uh, I, I have, but that is all. That is from my imagination. 
Oh, that is okay. And that, but that's a work in progress. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty close because uh, I keep seeing it, but you keep sharing photos of it as it's being built. I know, I know, I can't resist, you know. So I have to kind of like hashtag work in progress. But also, that is a good question. When is it done? You know, like I was painting at this workshop, painting a model last weekend or the weekend before, and I made it perfectly. I should have stopped after the first 25 minutes and just be like, okay, I could make this more done, but this is raw. This was all blasted out, me actively looking, mark making. I should just let this solidify and figure that I can I can fix it later if I need to. But, you know, I didn't because the workshop's three hours long, so I just kept fucking with it. And then, and then it's, you know, like if you look at a graph of how happy I am with it, it's like, whoa. And then, I'd like, at the end, I was almost as happy with it as when I first was. and was like, I'm just going to, I should have just stopped. That's part of it, just knowing when, when you're done. Yeah, and that comes with maturity, too, I suppose. Right. I remember reading about Matisse, back to Matisse, you know. And he said, when I was young, I would hire a model for three hours, and I'd do one drawing for three hours. I'd work on it, and I'd, I'd make it really nice. He's like, now that I'm older, I hired a model for three hours. I do 75 drawings. That's a different kind of understanding of a likeness as opposed to like getting all the shades and the halftones and the gradations. I can draw in two seconds a self, a, a caricature self-portrait. Beep, 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 beep. Be like, oh, that's you. Ha, ha. That's where Matisse wanted to get to with someone's likeness. He wanted to just be able to be familiar with it enough, their face, their features. He could just be like, boom, boom, yeah. And they, everyone would look at it and go, ha, yeah, that's you. And then he felt like, oh, now I can start a painting. And he'd start the painting just doing the caricature kind of style likeness. And that was that was enough. But it took him 75 or 100 little drawings, one after another, five minutes each, to get to the level of digestion of the image to where he can just sign it like his name. And then I remember reading that Picasso said to him, yeah, you know what? The first one you did was always the best one, dummy. <laughs> one out of 75 was the best one. You did 74 more. Why didn't you just stop right there and try to screw the model? <laughs> there you go. That sounds like Picasso, yeah. There. <laughs> one and done. Okay, baby. <laughs> I mean, there's a video of you painting in Los Angeles where you take your glasses off so that everything's blurry. Yep, I love that. And there was actually a point when I was going to get surgery, and I'm glad I didn't, because I have a choice now between, like, sharp and the median filter. You know the median filter in Photoshop? Sure. Everything looks like the median filter now. It's so much easier to digest a tree or a cityscape when you're just seeing slabs of color and splotches of different lights and darks. You put the glasses on, the left brain kicks in, and you're, like, counting window frames and trying to get the exact uh, number of leaves in the tree. I feel like when I take the glasses off, it goes to the right brain. That is just seeing colors, not interpreting it, just raw colors. And it's, it's not completely. When I work from photos, I do both. I turn the photo upside down and I take the glasses off. And then I'm really just slapping colors on because you don't know anatomy as well when you see a face or something upside down. Yeah, wow. I love all these little hacks. I hope people play with these in their own endeavor, uh, painters, yeah. certainly. But also even these AI prompters can be 
maybe they, we can loosen them up a little bit mm. to get more painterly as best they can anyway. Well, I've found that if you, uh, if you enter your prompt and then you say, as a painting in the style of mm. Albert Pinkham Ryder or in the style of Manet, then it'll try to make it like a Manet painting. Yeah, I've been mashing up photographers, so I'll, I'll throw in very disparate photographers just to see what happens. And it's quite something. It's quite fun, actually. Yeah. God, I saw someone do a mashup of uh, Hellraiser and Metropolis. <laughs> so, they, so the movie Hellraiser with the movie Metropolis from the 30s, and the images it created were just incredible. It just mind-blowing. Yeah. And it was just nothing, nothing before seen. It's crazy, that, you know. This writer strike is an existential battle. I think part of it is they're concerned about what this AI is going to be able to create. I mean, think about: Are there going to be carpenters in Hollywood anymore, or is everything <laughs> going to be green screen and digital sets? Yeah, for a while. Well, I've I've thought my particular position as a still photographer on movie sets would be vanquished the day I started, 15 years ago, and I'm still doing it. So yeah. I, I don't know. I think we tend to overestimate the speed at which that change will happen. But eventually. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think in the end, that form of storytelling is, is such a unique and collaborative form of storytelling that if you were just doing it all alone, sitting with your computer, it would miss, it would miss all those weird yeah. combinations of talents. This computer actors and everything. But yeah. someone's going to do it. And it's going oh, to be sure. like a cause celeb. Yeah, I think they've already mashed up. They did a Wes Anderson version of Lord of the Rings. Oh, no. No way. Oh, that's funny. The same kid did a Wes Anderson version of Star Wars. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so they're genius and brilliant and fun. Yeah. I love Wes Anderson's films. They're so, you know, uh, formal to the picture, to the, to the picture plane. Yeah. That, those, his compositions. He just keep, he keeps upping himself, too. It's really something. Yeah. And there is a good example, too, of he has relationships with these actors that keep coming back, right? There's something magic in that weird form of art, like a play. Yeah. Where the interactions of the actors is part of the mystery and magic of that process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I want, if we're just going to conclude with just talking a little bit about money, if anything that I try to try to convince people of, is that we have to let go of the Federal Reserve System. It is cooked. It is done. It has twice failed. It failed when FDR took all the gold. That was, they failed. And they created a new money. And it failed again in 1971, and they created another new money. That was, they were able to extend and pretend even further. And we cannot allow this three times failed institution to be empowered the way they would be empowered with a digital currency, it must be forbidden. If anything, I want people to look at the Federal Reserve as a failure and as a parasitic, tacked-on part of the government that has run its course. It was a fool's errand to ever allow it to happen and we cannot allow them to ha issue a CBDC. To me, that is like the end of it. It'd be like, well, what are they going to do? Return to a more constitutional money. 
and make Bitcoin legal tender. You know, the fact that they just have a cartel on the dollar and spending in and of itself is like, shouldn't be permitted anymore. You know, I mean, I see why it is because they want to just keep running the show the way they're running the show. And as long as they're running the show, America is going to lurch from emergency to emergency, from war to plague to famine to war over and over, escalating bigger and bigger to justify bigger and bigger budgets. And it is only at this point, we're not even circling the bowl. We're like flying down into the sewer at this point. And we have to get to that little uh, exit pipe right before we get into the septic tank. <laughs> yeah, and do you think that art plays a role in waking people up? Well, I don't know how much I'm waking people up, but hopefully just part of a conversation. I think a lot of what's waking people up is just too big to fail, too big to jail politicians and banks that are continually bailing themselves out. And there's just no no concern for the public, for America. I've heard people make arguments. If America would just spend money at home and stop wasting it on wars, it would not be as inflationary as what they're doing. If they actually built infrastructure and built modern, necessary aspects, if they, if they would but just do that, it would not be as inflationary as just a trillion dollars wasted in Afghanistan that had no benefit whatsoever. There's nothing, there's no road left, there's no bridge, there's no superhighway, there's no something that is of lasting benefit like a dam or a hydroelectric plant or whatever. You know, and all these people talk about electric future. $100 billion, you could build seven next-generation nuclear power plants and you could start shutting down these green debacles We'd have endless power. It would be way safer than the old nuclear power plants. Green energy is a joke if the energy is going to be gotten from pinwheels and solar panels. <laughs> it's a nice image. You know, and when I see a whole mountain, acres and acres of uh, solar panels just covering the earth, I'm like, yuck. How does anybody think <laughs> that that is good for the environment? I mean, I don't even care if it's out in the middle of the desert. There's lizards out there, you know? Yeah, and birds. And birds and flora and fauna. We don't even appreciate it. We just blanket it with these black panels. Yeah. Yeah, look, you're preaching to the converted over here in the Bitcoin camp. I know. And it, But I it's know. nice. It's nice to know that you're aligned. And, and it's funny, too, it's still for me to hear, right, because we've been so indoctrinated yeah. In the opposite story. We still see it. You can't it's hard to have conversations with what we'd call normies. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And and it's maybe we take sanctuary in our art forms just to recharge, right? And maybe your work is in keeping people charged up with a smile. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. That it's okay to be angry. That you should be angry. Everybody should be angry. And they need to be angry at the right people, not another race, not you know, you shouldn't be angry at the immigrants. You should be angry at the system that's letting this happen. You know, you shouldn't be uh, pissed off at people taking your job. You should be pissed off at people who sent your job to China frickin' 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, and to see through these false dichotomies of red, team red, team blue, all the rest of it. It's a uniparty yeah. and a Federal Reserve and a broken money. We have one problem. Henry David Thoreau 
said, there's lots of people striking at the branches and the leaves on the tree of problems, but no one strikes the root. And to me, the tree of problems, unemployment, desperation, racism, xenophobia, suicide, drug addiction, families falling apart, unaffordable to live with a job, that every, every problem, every branch off the tree of problems stems from the Federal Reserve and this uh, endless well of bad money for bad ideas, bad foreign policy, bad domestic policy. The foreign policy created the need for homeland security. So now that was like a whole nother place to, to sink a trillion dollars. It's crazy. We really got to get to the point where we can we can realize we have to realize we can survive without these institutions. We don't need this FBI or this CIA anymore. They are completely have have crossed the Rubicon into just becoming like the Pope's guard, you know, or whatever. They're just attack dogs for the deep state. Yeah, it is wild to watch, and it's wild to watch things like censorship be embraced by the left. It's just like we're upside down world. I know. And they're all Slava Ukrainian. There's just no, no thought into why this is happening. And here all these lefties are just warmongers now. Yeah, it's surreal. I think it's just, it's, it's incredible. And calling for censorship. Yeah. Yeah. Very frustrating. Well, it's funny as we've been talking here, Zack Snyder's, voice came into my head because he often says when we're getting near to shoot he says, set it on fire and film it <laughs> <laughs> like to motivate the crowd and to, i like it to get us going yeah, it's, it's like uh, jimmy hendrix and his guitar yeah unbelievably apropos talking to you <laughs> let's set it on fire and, and paint it yeah it, it's uh but i still believe it i i believe that there's hope i'm glad that we have the Second Amendment, I think that America, I think there's like two Americas. There's the ideal and there's the public at large. And there is the ideal that is the Constitution that has been improved and improved. And I think the other America is the deep state. And they are unaccountable. They are complete. And they are not America. So I believe in this country, but we have to get rid of these people that have hijacked the good of what this system was. Yeah, and I think even Max Kaiser makes the allusion to Bitcoin being a kind of constitution 2.0 that can spread America globally. Yeah. That can give a constitution like freedom to anyone who embraces it. I, know. I really like that too. I know. You know. Henry Ford said, if the American public knew the true nature of their money, there'd be a revolution in one day. And you know, that might be coming. Your average Joe might be getting educated enough to realize that this is just a scam. And these people running it are just, they're like the priests in the in Plato's cave running the puppet show. And people need to wake up. Yeah. Get up, walk out, stop watching the show. But it is mind-boggling how people cling to these things. And it's a psychological battle. This is psychological warfare, too. It is. And though it does seem like in any revolution, an overwhelming majority just go along with the winning side, so to speak. Yeah, I know. Right. And so I guess we're at the forefront. We're going to have to take up and give voice to these opinions. I mean, you're doing so in the fine arts. 
and tweeting. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe this podcast is a little piece of that for a a gentle wake-up call that, that the arts and that creativity is going to be required as we reinvent, as we burn down or dismantle this broken clown world and rebuild anew. You know, and as like, uh, as Mr. Let's Paint says, embrace failure. We need to. We need to let these things fail. And it's not going to be easy to watch it happen. And it's going to be epic. But it has to happen. This failure has to happen. Yeah. And then the phoenix from the flames reemerges. Yeah. Well, that's hopeful. I like it. I like it. Yes. Alex, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your opinions. That was fun. There you have it. Alex's site, paintwithalex.com, and all his social feeds are at paintwithalex. They're well worth a bookmark or follow. Same can be said for this podcast. Be sure to rate, subscribe, and most of all, share the Bitcoin Muse with your creative friends. We need to get artists down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and obviously I think my podcast is a decent entree. You tell me. Thanks to my brother for the music. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Alex Schaefer for sharing his time, energy, and enthusiasm on the Bitcoin Muse. Onward.